Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. The largest federal employees union recently celebrated its first big win in Europe. Last month, a group of Defense Department employees voted to join the American Federation of Government Employees. The new unit will cover 400 employees who work for the Army and Air Forces Exchange Service at the Kaiserslautern Military Community Center Exchange in Germany. For why and how the vote came about, Anastasia Obis spoke with AFGE District 14 organizer Peter Winch. AFGE heard from AFES employees in Europe, some of whom had been members stateside, and said they they felt that the scheduling wasn't being done fairly and that they were being left with part-time work when full-time work was available and that in some cases the German nationals were getting the full-time work and not the Americans. And the, they had no weight in the system there. They had no, no advocate. If you're not full-time, you lose a lot of benefits and in terms of days off and, uh, and paid leave and, and other things uh, they really, they, but just in general, they need an advocate in the system. And so AFG, I work for AFG District 14, and we have jurisdiction in the national capital region and also in Europe. So earlier this year, and Federal News Radio covered it, we launched an at-large local for DOD employees in Europe and with the idea of using that platform, that at-large platform to start winning elections for uh, different DOD operations in Europe. And this is our first win. And so we launched the local in, you know, earlier in the year, about June or so. And we we built up quite a bit of momentum. And in, the, in 2024, I think I'll be able to report several more election victories for different groups around Europe, different groups of DOD employees. But uh, these AFIS employees are the first one and they work retail. So, you know, I think all of us have become aware of what some of the issues are in retail about scheduling and pay. And those are all factors in DOD employment. And in, in it's a retail kind of job. And one thing that President Biden did was with AFG's, you know, working on it was to make a $15 an hour minimum for federal employment. We worked to get that to include what they call non-appropriated fund employees. So NAF employees are non-appropriated fund. They're paid from the, what the store makes rather than paid from taxpayer dollars. And we, we requested that Biden uh, stretch that executive order to include the NAF employees that we, you know, around the country that we have an interest in. So the AFES Europe benefited from that. They were making considerably less than 15 uh, for the most part. Also uniquely in Europe, DOD has a policy of trying to rotate you back to the United States after a period of time. And you can get extended on that. But if you don't play ball, they'll send you right back, sometimes at your own expense. So there's a lot of there's a lot of injustice that's been brought to AFG's attention for DOD employees in Europe. And um, I could tell you about some of the other agencies we're, we're interested in, but we hope we have a council of AFES locals. We have a master agreement. And right away, uh, now that we're certified by the FLRA, 
they'll get things that are in the contract, like work shoes and uniforms that they weren't getting or they were having to pay for themselves. Could you talk about the total number of employees and now the percentage of part-time employees? During this whole process, it was 420, 395, but it's right around 400, and around half of them are part-time employees. They're in different locations, but they're all under one store, one general manager, one supervision. And we also, uh, we're, we have active committees, AFI's organizing committees going on. It, so this is, this area is where most of American employment in Germany is con- or in Europe is concentrated, which is in the Wiesbaden area, sort of near Frankfurt, Germany. We also have a committee in Stuttgart, Panzer for AFIs, and at um, in Brussels in Belgium. So this is, we could have asked for an election across the continent for all AFIs locations, but we decided to build like some momentum and some, and, and we just had to get familiar with the workforce. And like I said, some of the little differences, like we didn't know that there were 40 or 50 people working, serving school lunches. Uh, and so we, it was a learning, somewhat of a learning curve for us, even though I, and and by us, uh, we have an AFG legal rights attorney named Javier Soto, who's stationed, who has an AFG Europe office in the Wiesbaden area, in the, in the Kaiserslautern area. He's been taking cases of members, of dues-paying members, and he's been conducting these organizing campaigns with myself and others assist like you and I are via Zoom because we learned during COVID that we could reach out and do things virtually because Europe had been sort of a lost cause for the union for some time. And we just got a lot more skilled and a lot more of the resources we need. And But the issues are pretty much the same. In Europe, people get Part of their pay is a local quarter allowance or LQA, and there's just a lot of issues with the LQA. We don't have that in the state side. So Javier has been learning how to represent federal employees in Europe, and we're doing it pretty effectively. But the, what we need to not represent individuals, but start representing bargaining units, and this is our first one. What was the attitude among those workers throughout this entire process? Well, we had some few firebrands who, you know, I'm over here. Javier can't be circulating these cards. We didn't, we didn't pay for an organizer to go to Europe. This was person to person, worker to worker, circulating these cards, which you are legally entitled. Federal employees are legally entitled to circulate these cards, but they have to do it in a non-work status before work or after work. They can't do it on the clock. And they just, uh, we had some very strongly motivated individuals and they quickly got us the whole showing of interest that we needed. They knew their colleagues, they knew what their issues were. Javi and I participated in, in, and so did our national vice president, Otis Johnson, in several Zoom calls that we arranged where we had large turnout and people wanted to talk about their issues. And it was just, it was Gratifying to see the big turnout and the the quick collection of the showing of interest cards. And the cards don't make you a member. Now we'll go into a phase where we're going to ask them to agree to become dues-paying members. But I'm confident 
that we will build a membership base and we have people who are willing to be officers and stewards. Our master agreement with Athes allows for local supplements. So our goal will be to get a local supplement at, at in Germany that covers their specific working conditions and some of the some of the issues that they raised to us. Peter Winch, organizer for AFGE District 14, speaking with Federal News Network's Anastasia Obis. Check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people? And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs 
and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, 
I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, Mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how how are things going, Um, because we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, 
somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have, to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and work alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's... Uh, It's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.